On November 10th of 1985, a hunter was walking through the woods in Bearbrook State Park in Allenstown, New Hampshire, when he stumbled upon a large steel drum. Inside the drum was two bodies that had been dismembered and wrapped in plastic. Fifteen years later, on May 9th of 2000, a second steel drum was found in the same area containing two more bodies. It would take 17 years to find the killer and even longer for the victims to be identified. But that is not the end of this mystery. This is the twisted story of the Bearbrook murders. I'm Ashton, and welcome to The Haunted Corner. everyone. Welcome back to The Haunted Corner. I'm Ashton, and today I'm covering a case that I wasn't familiar with, as per usual. So I looked deep into this case. There's a really great podcast called Bearbrook. It's really well done. There's also a 2020 episode about this case and plenty of articles that I used, which will be linked to on the blog post. So let's get into it. The story begins in 1985 in Bearbrook State Park, which is located in Allenstown, New Hampshire. The park is covered in thick forest and spans 10,000 acres with over 40 miles of trails. One crisp fall day, a group of 11-year-old boys were playing their own version of hide-and-go-seek in Bearbrook State Park. But only instead of playing on foot... They would use four-wheelers to get around, which sounds epic, actually. But on this day, while they were playing, one of the boys came across a 50-gallon steel drum standing upright in the middle of the woods. He called his friends over, and they noticed that the lid wasn't secure. There was a plastic bag kind of sticking out of it. They were trying to get the lid off, and that's when they were hit with the strong smell that they described somewhat like rotten milk. The boys, being young boys, didn't really know what to think about this, so they tipped the barrel over, got on the four-wheeler, and left without seeing what was inside the barrel. The next person to come across the barrel was a hunter on November 10th of 1985. The hunter investigated the barrel, barrel a little bit more thoroughly than the boys had. Inside, he found two sets of skeletonized remains that had been dismembered, wrapped in plastic bags, and had been secured with electrical tape. Authorities were called in to investigate. Both victims were female. One was a young woman between the ages of 23 and 33. She was white with curly light brown hair, and she was estimated to be between 5'4 and 5'7". The other was described as a young girl between 8 and 10 years old with light brown hair, approximately 4 foot 3 inches tall. The cause of death for both was determined to be blunt force trauma to the head. Allenstown had a population of 5,000 people at the time, so police were hopeful that the victims would be identified. 
investigators were looking into all aspects of the case. Were they missing people? Was this a missing persons case? Were they local? Were they from out of town and possibly dumped there? Someone had to know something. But the case remained unsolved and eventually went cold. Two years after the, after the victims were discovered, they were buried at a local cemetery and a headstone was donated. Because they were identified, the headstone simply read, Here lies the mortal remains known only to God of a woman aged 23 to 33 and a girl aged 8 to 10. Their slain bodies were found on November 10th, 1985 in Bearbrook State Park. While the investigation into the Bearbrook murder victims was ongoing, in 1986, a man named Gordon Jensen was staying at a trailer park in Scotts Valley, California with his daughter, Lisa. She was about five at the time. Gordon became friends with a couple named Catherine and Richard Decker who were staying there temporarily. And eventually, after getting to know the couple more, he began to confide in them. He told them that as a single father, he was having a really hard time raising Lisa alone and everything. And he was telling separate stories about how Lisa's mother had died. His first story was that she had died from cancer. Another was that she was apparently hit by a car. The Deckers had a daughter around Lisa's age, and they had talked to Gordon about possibly taking on Lisa in a trial adoption. They saw how he was struggling and thought that this would be a solution for everyone. They wanted to adopt her. So they took Lisa with them to Southern California for about two weeks as a trial. It was during this time that they noticed that Lisa was showing some signs of having been abused. So the Deckers contacted authorities who then tried to reach out to Gordon, but he had vanished. No one knew where he was. Gordon Jensen was just gone. So this guy had just abandoned his daughter and authorities were trying to figure out who exactly he was. So they talked to the owner of the trailer park where Gordon had been working as a handyman and they asked him, if there was anything in the office that Gordon had possibly touched, trying to see if they could get his fingerprints. Well, he had installed the security system, among other things, so the authorities were hopeful that they could get some prints from this to tie Gordon to tie to Gordon and figure out who he really was or if he had a record, like whatever, because this guy was just gone. But Gordon had taken a cloth and wiped the panels clean on the outside. But on the inside, they found eight usable prints. And when they ran the prints through the database, they were connected to a man named Curtis Kimball, who had been arrested for DUI in 1985 after he was in a car accident with his daughter in the car. When he got out of prison, he immediately took off. Then, two years later... He's pulled over and arrested for Grand Theft Auto using the identity of Gerald Mockerman. So it's at that time that he was charged with child abandonment. He served a year and a half in prison and was released on parole in 1990. At that point, he fled and became a fugitive. Now, with her father abandoning her and her mother seemingly being deceased, 
The Deckers couldn't adopt Lisa, and she went into the foster care system, which is awful. That whole system needs a little revamp, a complete revamp, but that's a conversation for another day. So now we're going to bounce back to the Bear Brook murder investigation. The case remained unsolved until 2000, and that's when a state trooper named John Cody was assigned to look into the case. He started by looking into the evidence, including the barrel, and also by going out to the spot in Bear Brook State Park where the barrel was found. He was scoping out the terrain, looking for anything that might provide some new clues into the case. He was about to leave for the night when he noticed a lump in the terrain that stood out to him. He was walking towards it, and he noticed another barrel with a black trash bag inside. He opened the bag, and that's when he discovered more human remains inside, not far from where the first barrel was found. This time, there are the remains of two young girls inside, one who was estimated to be between the ages of one and three years old, and the other who was estimated to be between the ages of two and four. They, too, had died from blunt force trauma and were wrapped in plastic and placed in the barrels. So now they had one adult female and three young female children who had been brutally murdered, but they still didn't know who they were. Around this time in California, a woman named Unsoon Jun was introducing her new boyfriend to her family. Unsoon was a chemist in her mid 40s. She was an immigrant from Korea who was described as a free spirit who loved to travel and explore different people and religions. She was also lonely and struggled with relationships until she met a man named Larry Vanner. She introduced him to her family, and apparently it did not go well. He was rude and off-putting, and within a few months, family and friends noticed that Unsoon was becoming distant, and eventually they stopped hearing from her altogether. When her friend, Renee Rose, would call to talk to Unsoon, Larry would answer and make excuses about why she couldn't come to the phone. He would claim that she was off doing things, and he even told Renee that Unsoon didn't like her anymore and she didn't want to be her friend. So immediately, red flags are going up for Renee. She gave Larry an ultimatum. She told him that she wanted to hear Unsoon's voice and to hear her tell her that she was done being her friend. She was going to go on vacation for 10 days, and she told Larry that she wanted to hear Unsoon's voice on her answering machine when she returned or she was going to call the police. And that's what she did. Roxanne Gruhide was working as a detective in Contra Costa County at the time when she received the missing persons report for Unsoon. Police brought Larry in for an interview. He was not being cooperative. He was babbling and telling stories, but nothing that had to do with Unsoon. And eventually he started giving reasons that Unsoon was not available. He said that she was up in Oregon taking care of his property, but then he changed the story and said that she had had a nervous breakdown and then if authorities called her, it could trigger an anxiety attack for her. So he was clearly not being truthful. Authorities wanted to fingerprint Larry and he ultimately agreed and there was a match. 
His fingerprints were linked to Curtis Kimball, who was a parolee at large. The authorities came back in the room and they're like, hey, Larry, uh, your fingerprints came back. And does Curtis Kimball ring a bell for you? He shakes his head no. And they're like, "Uh, yeah, dude, that's you. He was read as Miranda rights and he declined to make any other statements at that time. So the question then became, where is Unsoon? Roxanne and her partner went to the house to see if they could find Unsoon or see if there was any evidence of her in the house. According to Roxanne, the house was a little messy, but nothing crazy. There was no sign of a struggle, but there was also no sign that a woman had lived there. No clothes, purses, nothing. Eventually, they made it to the garage, which is where they found a lot of pots that Unsoon had made. And there was a small room in the back of the garage. It was somewhat like a crawl space. And inside, there was a giant pile of cat litter on the floor. There was an axe leaning up against the wall and blood spatter throughout the room. Crime scene investigators were called in, and as they began to dig through the pile of cat litter, they discovered a human foot with a flip-flop on it. The body was identified as that of Unsoon June, and she had also died of blunt force trauma to the head. Within a few weeks of the discovery of Unsoon's body, Larry Vanner, also known as Curtis Kimball, was charged with her murder. But they needed to find something that connected him to the act of her murder, more than just her body being found in his house. And what they connected was the cat litter. There were 10 bags of cat litter that were found. So they wanted to try to find out where where the cat litter had been purchased at. And Roxanne noticed a detail. The bank reported that there was video of Larry using Unsoon's ATM card to take out money. And Roxanne remembered that in that same shopping center, there was also a pet store. And based off of that detail alone, she went to the pet store and started asking around and spoke to an employee at the store. She had a- she asked him if anyone had come into the store and purchased a large amount of cat litter. And the guy's like, um, yeah, this guy came in and bought 10 bags. And then he goes on to describe Larry to a T. So at the pretrial hearing for Larry's murder trial, he pled guilty. He didn't want to talk about it. And he just wanted to be sent to to jail. So he was. He was sentenced to 15 years to life in prison and... While he was serving a sentence, he died there in 2010. But that wasn't the end of the story. Roxanne had to dig deeper into the child abandonment charge and his daughter, Lisa. She just had a feeling that he was hiding something and that there was more to the story. So she decided to look deeper. She wanted to know if it was his daughter or not. And if if it wasn't, then where did he get her from? So she put in a request for a paternity test on Lisa. She tested the blood samples of Larry and Lisa, and it was determined that he was not biologically related to her. He was not her father. So where did he get Lisa from? Who was this child? 
Roxanne immediately called the San Bernardino Sheriff's Office, who had handled Lisa's case 17 years earlier, and she was about to drop this massive bomb on them. She's like, hey, this girl could be a found Jane Doe, an unsolved missing persons case. And that at that time, she was 22 years old. Authorities called Lisa and she learned that her father was not her father. She didn't know who, what her real name was or where she came from. So now authorities were focused on finding out who she really was, what happened to her mother, and how Larry came to have her. Did he kill her mother? You know, police realized at this point that they were dealing with a serial killer. And this is where the investigation really took off, and it eventually led back to Bearbrook. 30 years after the first barrel was discovered, in 2015, the victim's identity still remained a mystery. State police began working with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children to reignite the case. They came up with composite images of the victims and what they may have looked like, looked like when they were alive. In addition to the images, they also used DNA testing to see if the victims were related. This confirmed that the adult woman and two of the younger girls were related, likely a mother and two her two daughters. So the mother and the daughter and the young girl in the first barrel and the younger of the two in the second barrel, all three of them were related. But the second girl found in the second barrel was not related to them. So who was she? Now they have two unidentified girls, Lisa and the young girl who was found in the second barrel. In 2015, more than a decade after finding out that the man who abandoned her was not her father, Lisa had an idea. She learned that people were using online DNA websites to find their relatives, so she submitted her DNA to Ancestry.com, and there were a few hits from some distant cousins. The next step was to reach out to a genetic genealogist named Barbara Ray Vetter, who looked into Lisa's history. She spent hours and hours building a family tree, which eventually led to a man in New Hampshire who happened to be her grandfather. They reached out to him and confirmed via DNA testing that he was Lisa's grandfather. And that's when Barbara, the genetic genealogist, learned that he had a daughter named Denise Bowden, and Denise was Lisa's mother. Authorities notified Lisa and told her that her real name was Dawn Bowden and that she was born in 1981. She was last seen by her grandfather in New Hampshire at Thanksgiving that year when her mother's boyfriend, a man named Bob Evans, notified the family that they would be leaving town because they owed people money. A week later, when the grandfather went to their house to invite them to Christmas dinner, they were gone. The family had packed up and left. Of course, the grandfather didn't know what to think or what to do. It was 1981. People weren't easy to track down if they didn't want to be. And he kind of assumed that they had gone off to start a new life, so no missing persons report was ever filed. So the last person that was seen with Lisa in New Hampshire was Bob Evans. Then a few years later, there's Gordon Jensen in California. Maybe they're the same person, right? 
So authorities in California sent pictures of Gordon Jensen, also known as Curtis Kimball, to Manchester police, who then took the mugshots to the grandfather, who right away confirmed that it was the same man that he knew as Bob Evans, the man who was last seen with his daughter Denise and his granddaughter Lisa. So the pieces are starting to fall into place. Authorities had connected three of the four mysteries in the story together. The murder of Unsoon Jun, the identity of Lisa, and the disappearance and presumed murder of her mother, Denise Bowden. In 2016, police opened a missing persons case for Denise. She had never been reported missing before then. Now working with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children once again, more connections were made. Denise went missing from Manchester in 1981, which is only about 25 minutes from Bearbrook State Park. The first barrel was discovered in 1985. So was it possible that Denise was the adult female that was discovered in the barrel? To find out, investigators started looking deeper into Gordon, also known as Bob, also known as Larry, and his connections to Allenstown. Bob Evans had showed up in New Hampshire in the late 70s and worked as an electrician and handyman and actually did some work at a camp store, which was located right there on the property where the two barrels were found. Investigators wanted to know what the connection was between Bob Evans and the barrels. The bodies of the victims who were found in the first barrel were exhumed and tested for DNA once again. The DNA of the adult was compared to Lisa's DNA, and it was not match. Uh, not, it was not a match, so this took the wind out of the sails for investigators. It was a little bit of a letdown because now not only did they not know who the victims in the barrel were, but they also did not know where Denise Bowden was or what had happened to her. The next step was to was to test Bob's DNA against the victims in the barrel to see if there was a match. And this proved that the unidentified young girl who was found in the second barrel, who was not related to the others, was his daughter. So investigators knew that these cases were related. They had finally connected the fourth mystery, but it wasn't over yet. So this young girl is his daughter. But who was her mother? What happened to her? What happened to Denise? It just keeps going. They knew that they had a serial killer on their hands who went by at least four different aliases. And they also gave him the nickname of the chameleon because of that. But we're not going to call him that because gross. Back again is Barbara Ray Vedder, the genetic genealogist. She did the exact same thing to figure out who this dude actually was. Not the chameleon, not Bob, not Larry, not Gordon, who this guy actually was. So here comes Barbara once again. She mapped out a family tree for this guy, and she determined that his real name was Terry Rasmussen, and he was from Colorado. Terry had a pretty normal, conventional life. He had a wife and four kids. Yeah, outside of all this other stuff, he had a wife and four kids. His wife had left him when the kids were really young, so he didn't have a connection to them for a long time. But years later, 
They received the shock of their lives when New Hampshire State Police cold case unit called them up to discuss Terry with them. Diane Klepfer is one of Terry's daughters, and the police came to her with the information that the man she knew as her father was not the man she thought he was, and that he was an actual serial killer. Since they hadn't had contact for decades, this information would come as a shock to Diane. But she described on the 2020 documentary that things weren't always perfect for the family. Her father, she said, would burn her brother with cigarettes. But she doesn't believe that her mother knew that her father was capable of being a killer. Terry was born in Denver in 1943, and he went to school in Arizona. He dropped out of high school and joined the Navy in 1961, where he was trained as an electrician, and he served for six years at various bases. He would target single, vulnerable women with young children. He would separate them from their families and insert himself into the picture before killing them. So at this point, they know who the killer is, and they know one of the victims in the barrels was his daughter, and that the other three were related to each other, but police didn't know the remaining three victims' identities. Then one day, a tip came in that would change the investigation. Enter a woman named Becky Heath, a woman like you and me. She was a librarian and someone who loved to investigate things in her spare time. She was scouring the internet one day, reading message boards, searching for anyone who might have been searching for a young woman and two children. And that's when she stumbled upon a post and she thought she may have found the Bearbrook murder victim's identities. She got into contact with someone who had been looking for three people matching the victim's descriptions, a mother and her young children. She reached out to the poster and began gathering information, including when she had last seen her family members and who they had been with. And that's when Becky received information that would stop her in her tracks. The poster said that the person they were looking for was married to a man with the last name Rasmussen. Meanwhile, Barbara Ray Vetter had been doing her own investigation into the identities of the Bearbrook victims. She read an article about a new forensic technique that was able to extract autosomal DNA from rootless hair. With this information, the hair from the victims was sent to be tested. DNA was extracted from the hair shaft and a profile was created. This profile was submitted to the databases and through genealogy testing, the identities of three of the four Bearbrook victims had finally been determined. They were formally identified as Marlise Honeychurch. Her oldest daughter, who was found in the first barrel with her, was identified as Marie Vaughn. And her youngest daughter, who was found in the second barrel, was identified as Sarah McWaters. Marlise was born in Stanford, Connecticut in 1954. She was described as bubbly and quirky. She got married and had her daughter Marie in 1971. She divorced her first husband after a few years. And then in 1977, Marlies gave birth to her youngest daughter before divorcing her second husband. The family was last seen in California in 1978 around Thanksgiving. At the time of their disappearance, Marlies was seeing a man named Terry Rasmussen. 
Marlies reportedly had an argument with her family and left with Terry. Despite searching, her family never saw or heard from her or her children again after that. And it's thought that the family moved to New Hampshire sometime after this. In November of 2019, a funeral was held for Marlies and Marie. They had been buried and given the headstone before they were identified. On the 2020 documentary, they showed footage of the funeral. Diane, Terry's daughter, was in attendance and was embraced by Marlies's siblings and family members who were there as well. The fourth victim, who was the biological daughter of Terry Rasmussen, remains unidentified. So hopefully one day, through more testing, they'll be able to identify her and find out who she was, who her mother was, and where her mother is. There's still so many unanswered questions in this case, but recently, genealogy testing has linked the unknown child's family to Mississippi. So maybe we're getting closer. And that is the story of the Bearbrook murders. Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed the episode. The sources for today's episode will be listed on the blog post for the episode at www.thehauntedcorner.com. I will link to that in the show notes as well. Check out the other episodes of The Haunted Corner available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts with new episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to share your support, head on over to Patreon. You'll have access to the exclusive Patreon-only episodes, early and ad-free access to the regular episodes, and a lot more. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash The Haunted Corner to join now. Follow us on social media at The Haunted Corner on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to tell a friend and rate and review wherever you listen. Also subscribe on YouTube if you're on there. If you have a case suggestion or a correction to share, please send it to thehauntedcorner at gmail.com or submit it through the website. Until next time, be kind and take care of yourselves and we'll see you soon. Bye.